really a privilege to uh, be here. I think this is my third or fourth time, and uh, I always love coming, but I'm really loving the weather uh, this time. Last time was like a downpour and freezing, and so I appreciate uh, that you prayed this good sun uh, weather in, and I'll go short so we can go outside and enjoy that, okay? How's that? No, no, no. Yeah, you know, one of the things that, that uh, I love about uh, the heartbeat of Shofar is, is uh, just what Sia said about uh, everyone of us are, are called uh, by God to serve in our place, wherever that is. And I love that you encourage and challenge and, and you show up all over the globe and uh, not just here from Stellenbosch and the Cape, but all over uh, your ministry shows up. And so it's a privilege to uh, get to be a small part of that. Uh, two summers ago, uh, Diane and I were in London. I have uh, some work I do in London, and so I'm there on a regular basis. She went with me on this trip, and um, she was, uh, it was late at night. I'd been in some meetings, and I'd taken the tube back in uh, to uh, where we were going to meet for dinner. It was probably 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, and uh, Diane was exercising her spiritual gift. She was shopping, um, and uh, and. Uh, in fact, just a little rabbit trail here. Uh, last Christmas, uh, she was out shopping and she got her wallet out to pull out a credit card. And uh, some guy came by and stole her wallet, sold her credit cards, everything. I haven't turned them in yet, though, because he's using them less than she was. So I'm way ahead at this point. I'm kind of up. But so we get off the tube and uh, I'm standing on uh, the street corner, maybe maybe about uh, three, four feet away from the curb. And I was texting her. She was in a, a large a store and I was trying to figure out which entrance uh, exit she'd be coming out. And I was holding my phone in my hand and I was texting and some guy on a bike jumped the curb, grabbed my phone and was gone. And before I even really realized what had happened, my phone, I, I didn't even know, like, you know how something happens to you so fast you don't even know? I thought I dropped my phone. I didn't know what had happened. <laughs> this guy stole my phone, roared through a, a red light on his bike, and just kept going. I, I was, I was a madman at that point. I was like insane. I was like going, like, my whole life is in this phone. And we were going to be gone for 10 days with no phone. Pull, pull your phones out. Your whole life exists in this thing, doesn't it? I mean, all my contacts are in here the way I was going to stay in touch. I was working on a business deal at the time. And I was, how were people going to call me and take care of stuff? I didn't even know how to find Diane at that moment. I didn't know where to go. I went and spoke to a police officer who basically said to me, yeah, sorry. Uh, I mean... Who cares about a phone getting stolen, right? When they got bigger stuff to do. I was nuts. Finally, Diane said, after three days, it was just your phone, shut up. <laughs> or something like that. I don't remember the exact words. You know, the reality is this. We get, we get connected in a lot of ways today. You know, we have today more opportunity to connect with others than uh, we've ever had. I love the fact that uh, over the years, I've been able to stay in touch with so many of your staff members who've become friends, and we do it uh, through WhatsApp and Instagram and so many other ways, Snapchat, that all the ways that you and I are online. But researchers in Berlin discovered this, that 75% of us, after we get off our social media accounts, whichever one we happen to be on, are, are angry or, or feeling depressed or lonely. Only. Why? Because we look at everybody's life and go, man, look at them. They're having a great They're on the beach. They're 
They're eating some marvelous food. By the way, why do you post pictures of your food? Who cares what you're eating? Nobody cares. I don't care. You don't. Oh, look at me. And then, you know, I was like. But most of us have lots of connections, but not much depth in relationship. And when we read through the Bible, over and over and over again, God is inviting us to connection that goes beyond just some kind of social media connection. We need people. I like to pretend that I don't really need people. I can, I can be a bit of a loner sometimes and I can, I'm good to just kind of hang back. And the reality is every one of us need people. And people are important, people are engaging, and people are also, let's just be honest, they're kind of irritating, aren't they? I mean, they're just like, why? Because people are people. You're people. Here's how this works. We all walk in today, and we're smiling, and we're worshiping, but the reality is some of you are driving, and we're fighting with your spouse on the way, and you get here to talk, hey, hi, I love Jesus. And then you're going to get done, and you're going to get back in the car, all the way home. How is it that we're able to kind of act like we got something going on when the reality is, man, life is hard and it's tough and things happen and we're people? I want to look at a story Jesus tells, and it's a familiar story. Whether you've ever been to church before or not, it'd be a familiar story too. It's found in Luke chapter 10. It's one of the more famous stories in culture uh, that Jesus told. We call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, and it's a fascinating story, and I think it has to do with the two things that Jesus said matter most. And what would happen if you and I would get better at the two things that Jesus said mattered most? Here's how the story goes on. Luke chapter 10, I'm gonna start down in verse 25. You have your Bibles or on your phones, I wanna invite you to turn there. On one occasion, an expert in law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And the man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, it's a big deal question. No matter where you are on the planet, in the history of mankind, a big deal question is this. Hey, what's going to happen to me when I die? I mean, I want to know what's next, what's coming. And I want to know how I'm going to live. I want to know how I'm going to have this eternal life. So this expert in the law comes to Jesus, a rabbi, and says to him, I want to know. You're a rabbi. You're a teacher. People have been bragging about how good you are. I want to know what what is the thing that matters most. I want to know how I'm going to have eternal life. And Jesus said, what's written in the law? Because from the time the young boy, uh, the the man would have been a young boy from from a toddler age on, he would have heard every day repeated to him what the, what the Jewish people called Shema, which was, was this idea of what mattered most. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Those two things. In another place in scripture, Matthew 22, Jesus gets asked that same question. It's a challenging question. You want to know what the greatest commandment was because there was an agreement among the Jews, uh, what the greatest commandment, and they thought that would just trap Jesus and get him kind of, uh, the people going against them and, And Jesus gave the same response. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And then Jesus added this line. He said, all the law and all the prophets hang on these two commands. In other words, here's what Jesus was saying. Everything that God has said, every word that he's uttered, every promise that he's given, every command that he's issued, everything that the prophets have spoken on his behalf, all of that law, all of those commands, all of that prophecy 
hung on those two things, love God and love your neighbor. If you want the door of your life to swing more freely, hang it on those two things. Because the reality is, some of us are kind of good at loving people, and some of us are kind of good at loving God, and God is saying to us, you want to be my person, then love me with all you have, and love the people around you. Love God with all your heart, all your emotion, all the things that that you care about, things you're passionate about. Love them with your soul, the very essence of your being. Love them with your mind, your intellect. God never invites us to check our brains at the door. In fact, fact, God invites us to seek him and to look at evidence and to dig and to ask and and to plow in and And love him uh, with all your strength, with the things you're good at. Because sometimes the hardest place for me to love God is the things where I feel competent in. Uh, Love him with my weaknesses. Love God with every fiber of my being. I didn't grow up in the church. I I, um, grew up in upstate New York in, in the States. And I was the first Christian in my family in several generations. And our family has kind of a uh, colored, uh, checkered history. We, we have trouble today getting family reunions together because we can never get parole dates to line up. It's a, a kind of a challenge for us. And, and uh, I, I became a Christian. And uh, not long after that, my parents became Christians. And not long after that, my sister became a Christian. And then I had the privilege of baptizing my grandparents and uh, my mom's mom, who she had reconciled with from a tough childhood, and some aunts and uncles, and grace changed our family. Changed the trajectory of our family, changed the trajectory of my life. I am so grateful for the grace of God. I remember the first time I was in high school, and I got invited to a, a, a retreat at a camp, and, and, um, and that was the very first time I'd heard there was a God who loved me. There was a little church down on the corner uh, where uh, my family had moved out to. My mom and dad both grew up in pretty dysfunctional families, and they were trying to break some family patterns, so we moved out to this little neighborhood and away from the city, and and um, and uh, uh, the preacher, uh, back in those days in the States, they would come uh, calling on your house. They would knock on your door, uh, go door to door to door, and when they'd come to our door, ring the bell, my dad would say, shh, everybody quiet. We'd sit in the house, you know, thought we were playing a game, <laughs> And I found out we kind of were playing a game. And then I went to this retreat. And it took me a while. I'm a bit of a skeptic and still am in so many ways to dig into evidence and figure out, uh, was, was there enough to really rely on the Bible and, and was Jesus who he said he was? And how to, but when I gave my heart to Christ, when I accepted that grace of God, that God loves me, loves me. If you don't hear anything else today, hear this, that God loves you, Period. No ifs, no ands, no buts, no commas, because most of the love you and I experience in life has a comma in it, doesn't it? I'll love you if, I'll love you when, I'll love you because. And God just loves you, period. There is nothing, nothing you're going to do today that is going to make God love you more. And there is absolutely nothing you're going to do today that's going to make God love you less. He loves you. And so to love him back, of course I want to love him back, he loves me. I love God. I love God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. I do love God. I've been a Christ follower for uh, more of my life now than I haven't been a follower. And I'm so grateful for his love. I love other stuff too. I love my wife, Diane. She got to come with me on this trip, her first time to South Africa, which we're, we're, uh, we're loving that chance to be here together and I love uh, the, the life we've had together. I love our kids. We've got three kids, and, 
and uh, and we love our our in law kids, our our kids' spouses. So our six kids, we love them. We love. We've got seven grandchildren now, so we are officially old. I have seven grandkids. I love my grandkids. I, I mean, I, I really love. I'm glad I didn't kill my children when 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 they were growing. I, I love my grandkids. They are they are awesome. I like my grandkids better than my kids. Do you know why grandkids, and sorry for this, do you know why grandkids and, and grandparents get along? Because they have a common enemy. <laughs> I love, I love Italian food. Uh, Andres and Lisa took us to Italian restaurant yesterday. They had no idea. I, I, Italian food ought to be its own separate food group. I love Italian food. I, I, I love, I, I love, what I really love I love Oreo cookies. You know Oreo cookies? Uh, I love Oreo cookies. I love, and sometimes I love Oreo cookies more than I love God. Whatever your bag of Oreos might be. You know that thing that gets ahead of God. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's your job, maybe for me sometimes it's something that's good, a ministry thing I'm doing. Sometimes I've loved our church more than I've loved God. Loving God with all I have is hard. And then he gets ramped up. Love your neighbor. I mean, look, look, look just to your left and right, those people right there. I mean, I know we love, I mean, I... You know, I get it. I, I know the Bible thing. I, I love everybody. I love you and you and you and all the people of the world. I love everybody. <laughs> There's just some people I don't like. In fact, a lot of people. You know, the people that we kind of categorize, we place them in spots, right? People who are different than us, irritate us, annoy us. Jesus said uh, that, that, that you've answered correctly. Love God with all you have and love your neighbor. You do this and you're going to live. What would happen if we got better at the two things Jesus said mattered most? And so this man, an attorney, an expert in the law, wanting to justify himself, says, who's my neighbor? Is it everybody that lives around me? Everybody that's in the same community I'm in? Is it everybody that lives in the same city? Who's my neighbor exactly? I mean, after all, if we're going to do the things God wants us to do, we ought to know exactly how it's going to get defined, right? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story. It's interesting. The guy asks a transactional question. Who's my neighbor so that I know who, who to love? And Jesus gives a transformational answer. The guy says, who or what? And Jesus says, how? Whole different exchange that goes on here. When he was attacked, uh, here's what Jesus says. And so uh, a man was going down from Jerusalem uh, to Jericho and he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now the priest and the Levite were the religious leaders. They were the ones who had the corner market on God. They were the ones who should have understood the command about loving God and loving your neighbor. They were the ones that actually would tell people how to love God and love their neighbor and actually encourage 
encourage them, challenge them, and chastise them if they didn't love God and love their neighbor. These were the keepers of the faith, so to speak. In essence, they were kind of the church. Love God and love your neighbor. These were the guys who were in charge, but they see this man and they pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, now remember, Jesus gives this ironic twist of the knife because Samaritans and Jews hated each other. Hated each other. If you were a Jewish person and you were in the marketplace shopping and you had your groceries in your handbag or your basket and a, and a Samaritan passed by and his shadow hit your groceries, you would drop them and leave them on the street and go home. Hated each other. The Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. And the next day, he took out two silver coins and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. And I want to look very quickly, look at the things that this Samaritan did. First one was this, he saw the man. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him. You know, for a long time, I didn't realize how often I just looked right through people. Just didn't see them. Or worse, when I saw them, I placed them in a category of sorts, and I could file them away in a box. The reality is what would happen if you and I would open our eyes in our communities to the needs around us? One of our staff members was uh, going through a devotional book with his uh, young daughters and they got to a place about praying for widows and orphans. And he said, here we are in the U.S. We had lots of widows to pray for. There were some in our church. There were, there were some in their family. He said, but orphans, I mean, orphans are in other part of the world, except it opened their eyes to praying and it led them to, uh, I'll tell the story quickly, it led them to getting connected to uh, being foster care parents. And fostering is a big issue in the U.S. It's, it's a, a phenomenally difficult social issue we have over. 460,000 kids in the foster system uh, in the U.S. And, and coming in daily with the meth and opioid issues going on in the U.S. right now, really challenging. And so they started becoming uh, foster parents. And they said uh, to me at church, what have we got involved? And so we went and we live in a part of the world where uh, Boulder County uh, often gets voted the least religious county in America. We have people called ABC people, anything but church, anything but church. And, um, and Boulder is weird. It's odd. We got every kind of fruit and nut there. It's 20 square miles surrounded by reality. Um, and so we were um, uh, talking to the head of Child Protective Services. Is there anything our church could do? And she said, she was one of those ABC people. She said, ah, no, I don't think so. But one of her assistants said, well, we're looking for a place to host a information night about fostering. Would you do that? And we did that. And, and over a, a three-year period, that led to us encouraging our church families to get involved in foster care. And then she stood up one time. Uh, this has been now, I think, 15 years ago. She stood up among her peers and she said this. Uh, all, all the directors of the counties in our state she said, we had, the, we had happened this year, the first time in our history in Child Protective Services, we have more homes available than we have kids who need a home. And then she said this. She said, it's because there's some church up in Longmont that's been helping us with this. And, uh, and so our church invested. But then we realized there's a bigger deal issue going on. There are kids in the system who when they age out, when they turn 18, and if they have been set free from their parents, if they don't have an adoptive family or a family that is a permanent family for them, whether they were adopted or not, 85% of those kids end up homeless, addicted, trafficked, 
or in prison or some combination. And so we said, what would happen if we could start getting involved? So we started videoing these kids and telling their stories and going to churches and businesses. And, and uh, we were able to take the number of kids, uh, 1,200 in Colorado, under 200 who needed a home and uh, find them a permanent family. And here's the cool thing. I think I shared some of that story when I was here last time. But now, uh, in the last uh, five years, we've launched... Uh, nationally, America's kids belong, and 22 states have asked our church to come and help them with that same issue of kids who are aging out of the system. And it happened, it happened, because somebody opened their eyes and saw a need. And there are needs all around us when you and I open our eyes. Here's the second thing this guy did. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He got his hands dirty. Because, you know, if we're going to get involved in being good neighbors, it's messy, isn't it? Why? Because people are messy. You're messy. I'm messy. And by the way, not every half-dead, naked, bleeding person is laying on the side of the road. Some work across the hall from you. Some live across the street. Some might even be in your own uh, community, your own circle of family. You know, in church, sometimes you want people to get their act together. But the reality is people, we don't have our act together. Hurt people hurt people, don't they? Sometimes they hurt us. Now, I have to admit, over the years, I don't know what's happened to me. I've become a bit of a germaphobe. I, I, you know, I mean, so we're going to stand out here in a little while, CS and I will, and, and you're going to want to shake our hands, and I don't want to shake your hand. As I see you coming. <laughs> you know, fist bump was the greatest invention of mankind. I'm not a hugger either. You know, I'm a one-arm hugger. I'm, uh, that's enough, close enough. It's just, uh, the rea- I, if I had to do uh, uh, CPR on the guy laying on the road, half dead, naked, and bleeding, it would have been like this. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't want to get that close, really. I, I'm just... Here's the reality. The people around us are kind of messy. We had a guy show up in our church. His name was Paul. And uh, we have a, uh, he had just showed up in our lobby and said he needed some help. And we had a pastor of the day, someone who's responsible for anybody showing up like that. And um, Brian went out to talk to him. And uh, Paul said, I'm 57 and I'm afraid I'm going to die before I know what it's like for someone to really love me. And I don't know why I'm here because I'm angry at God if there is a God. And I think Christians are hypocritical. And he told a story in the physical and emotional uh, abuse and sexual abuse he'd experienced. He, he ran away from home when he was 11. He said, I've been homeless uh, since my teen years. I've just bounced around. I haven't been sober uh, since my teen years. And uh, so Paul started hanging out, and he started hanging out. We, we tried to get him a job, and we'd get him a job, and it would last for two days. And, and uh, he'd get angry or blow up or come to work drunk, and, and we'd get him another job, and it would happen again. And we'd get him another job, and finally we just hired him at the church. We thought it was just easier, and uh, he started uh, working for us at the church. And he was angry. He was an angry guy. Didn't, didn't, I mean, we would stand in the parking lot some nights, some nights late at night, and we would talk about all his, and he was bright. He was intellectual, and he was, he would, and we'd go to lunch and we'd debate stuff. And I'd say, Paul, you ought to come to church. I ain't coming to church. You're all a bunch, I mean, you're all a bunch of hypocrites. I'm thinking, let's see, we gave you a job. We're feeding you. But, but, and, and then one Saturday night, I watched him walk in the back of our Saturday night service. And he would had a little bit of liquid courage. I know that's how he'd gotten in here. And, and he stood in the back and he just looked at me. And then he came all the way down to the front while I was preaching. 
stood right there in the front, just looking at me. Well, I'm kind of used to that. I mean, you know, some of you do this right now. Are kind of like, I get that. I'm all right with that. And after a few minutes, he turned around and he flipped off the congregation, gave him the middle finger, walked out the door. He had no idea how I had kind of wanted to do that a bunch of times, but, uh, but you know, that's, that's, that's a, that's a different story. That's a different story. <laughs> Paul started showing up more on Saturday nights. And then I remember the day our baptistry was right over here off to my left in our, in our, in our auditorium. And I remember the day when Paul gave his life to Christ and came out of that water. And did all this stuff go away? Nope. Still had some anger and addiction issues and challenges, and we kept working with him, praying for him. We actually bought a little trailer. He lived up behind the church building. On Sunday mornings, we'd gather together uh, to pray as a staff, and he would come and pray with us. And one Sunday morning, he wasn't there. We went out to look for him, and he'd passed away overnight. And here's what I loved. My friend Paul, my friend Paul gave way more to us than I ever got from him. But it was messy. It was messy. Here's a third thing. This guy was inconvenienced. He put the man on his donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. You know, it's never convenient to be a good neighbor. That guy, I bet that guy didn't get up that Samaritan and say to his wife that morning, hey, I've got to go to Jericho. I'm on some business. I want you to pray. I find somebody laying on the road, half dead, naked and bleeding. I bet behind his donkey wasn't a little trailer that said the half dead, naked, bleeding ministry, please support me. Uh, he was going to do what you're going to do this afternoon and tomorrow when we head to work or head to school or go to class. We're on our way to whatever. We got an agenda. We got things happening. And, and then there's going to be an opportunity. And we get to choose. And it's never convenient for us because the stuff that's good for me rarely is. Uh, my, both my parents have had some heart issues. And so my doctor over the last uh, eight or nine years has said, you know, you need to pay better attention. You need to eat better and, and you need to exercise more. And I, I just don't want to do either one of those things. I don't like exercising. Um, you know, we'll, we, I used to run more than I'm running now just because Diane's down here to hold me accountable. I've kind of gotten, I got to get back in. And she loves to run. She's all perky when she runs, you know. Some of you are runners, right? How many of you like to run or bike, you know? And where's Jocko? Is Jocko in here? Yeah, he ran. There he is in the back. He did that 100-kilometer run. Like, that's just insane. That's just well, no, it's just stupid. Who does that kind of stuff? Who, why do that to yourself? Like, like, why do that? And, you know, so I've tried running and all of you who run say to me, just hang in there because one day you're going to get that runner's high. I'm telling you, it hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. There's no, I hate every second of it. I don't, I just, my idea of exercise is fill the tub with hot water, pull the drain and fight the current. That's, that's, that's what I want to do. And eat better? I don't want to eat better. I love donuts. And if donuts were a drug, I'd be on a corner with a sign, you know. Uh, but I haven't had a donut now in almost three years. And, and, and just recently, I was driving through our town, Main Street, and there's a Winchell's Donut Store, best donuts in town. And, and I was praying. I was a couple blocks said, God, if you want me to have a donut today, please have a parking place open right in front of Winchell's, right in front of the store when I get there. And you're not going to believe this. This was amazing. My sixth time around the block, one, one opened up. It's awesome. You know, the reality is, the reality is, 
The stuff that's good for my heart is never convenient for me. Here's the fourth thing. It's implied. The man put the man on his donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. I think he befriended him along the way. Because the disenfranchised of the world need our friendship more than they need anything else. We've uh, gotten involved with single moms. Diane, my wife, was responsible for our church doing that. Our daughter had some uh, friends that were from single family households and we just got engaged in their lives. And, and uh, one of them particularly, she, the, the mom had three kids. Lizzie was uh, the second, friends with our daughter. She started going on trips with us and hanging out at our house. And, and then uh, she was pregnant with twins when her husband said, you know, I'm kind of done with this and just took off. Didn't send any money, didn't support. Tough time for the family. Single fastest growing household in the U.S. are single family. 98% of them are single moms. And there's some real needs. And so uh, through some initiatives Diane's helped us get going with, we do a lot with single moms. We have a Pearl group uh, that's uh, doing a lot of cool things in our city. And the city, uh, government, police, other social services, if you're a single mom, they say, hey, go, go check out LifeBridge. They got stuff uh, for you. We do a lot of practical things and a lot of spiritual things with them. And uh, uh, Diane had been out uh, shopping with uh, Terry, Lizzie's mom, and she said, you know, every time uh, we, we help out, you, you always get stuff for your kids, and we get that, but today I just want to take you shopping. Again, Diane exercising her spiritual gift. And, and uh, that day, uh, uh, when it was over, we're, we're in bed that night, and Diane said, you know what Terry said to me? We were on our way to lunch after we'd shopped, and she said, Terry said, you made me feel like a princess today, and Thanks for what you've done for me and for my family. But what I appreciate most isn't the stuff you do for me. It's your friendship I value the most. So can I ask a question that's the wrong question and it's the wrong way to ask? Who are you friends with that somehow you believe there's actually nothing they can do for you? You're doing something for them. It's a wrong way to answer the question. Because some of my best friendships are people like Paul. That I didn't think could do anything for me. Well, here's the last thing this guy did. Next day, he took out two denarii, two silver coins, and gave them to the innkeeper and look after him. He said, And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any ex- extra expense you may have. You know, sometimes the first thing I did was write a check. I saw a need, I heard about something going on, I'd write a check. And, and organizations and agencies and NGOs and churches need your resources to make things happen. Don't quit doing that. But the reality is, we made a decision as a family and as a church that we were no longer going to write checks to things if we didn't also get engaged with things. Because it just relieved the guilt to write a check. But I wasn't really loving God or loving my neighbor just by writing a check. Actually, this guy did one other thing that I thought was fantastic in this story. He sees the man and he got off his donkey and he helped him. Wouldn't it be awesome? Wouldn't it be awesome? And if every city uh, that, that, that we're in as the church, if we in the church right here, even here in Stellenbosch, if we would just get off our... Our donkeys. <laughs> wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be great? It's not what everybody else does. It's not what the church does as a whole. What I love about neighboring is this. The bar is so low. Every one of us can get over it. You can be nine or 90 and neighbor. You can be gifted or don't feel like you have any gifts and neighbor. You can care about your actual neighbor, the people around you. 
What would happen if we would get better at the two things Jesus said matter most, love God and love your neighbor? What does that look like for you if today you love God a little better than you did yesterday and today you love your neighbor just a little better than you did yesterday? Wouldn't it be amazing if you and I would get better at these two things that Jesus said, this is the biggest deal stuff God's ever said, love God and love your neighbor. I shared with you that I grew up in a fairly dysfunctional, uh, my parents grew up in a fairly dysfunctional family. My mom uh, was primarily raised in foster care, actually, and uh, her mom would just drop her off and uh, a family would, would take care of her. And, and uh, uh, my dad had moved uh, 14 times by the time he was in eighth grade, uh, by the time he would have been 13, 14 years old. And so he quit school and uh, uh, dropped out and and he had made a decision. He and my mom met when they were 18. They got married. They had no idea what they were doing. Uh, they both admitted that they, uh, but they wanted to change a pattern. So my dad took a job at a pharmaceutical company, Bristol Myers, and he started, he started out just sweeping floors and, and, uh, and then he worked his way up. Got his, he went back and got his high school diploma and ended up doing some college work and he ended up in middle management, uh, for this company, Bristol Myers. Stayed there over 35 years. Um, Broke a huge pattern. Gave a great life to me and my sister. And, and my parents had experienced some tragedy. I shared with you last night that my sister was killed when she was 18. My mom uh, and dad had lost three other children uh, to RH negative uh, back before they knew what to do with that. And so a lot of heartache, a lot of grief. And, and when we came to Christ, grace changed our family. And I watched my dad uh, become uh, just provided for us. And so I got a call that he was going to uh, take retirement, early retirement. And uh, I, I called my mom and said, hey, don't tell dad I'm coming home from Colorado to New York. I just want to fly in. I only have a day, but I want to say thanks. And uh, so uh, uh, she picked me up from the airport. We went to pick him up. He was coming out of his office. He had his box of stuff, you know. Uh, and I watched him walk across that parking lot. A mixed day of emotion. Sad to be leaving a place he'd been so long and excited about what the next chapter looked like. And he had his head down. He was coming through the security gate at this pharmaceutical company. And I was on the other side of the gate, and I just started clapping. <laughs> he looked up to see who the idiot was and <laughs> saw it was me. And we had a great time that night. We connected with their friends and family and celebrated. The next day, we went and played golf. And, and then he took me to the airport. And a few weeks later, I got a thank you card from my dad. And he said some really nice stuff in there about uh, how surprised he was and what a big deal a moment it was for him. And one he'd cherish his whole life and some other, he said some other nice things, but he closed with this. He said, one day, uh, when life is over for me, I hope God will let me stand at the gate and applaud you on your last day of work. And here's the reality. You and I may never, ever hear the words thank you from the people we think we ought to hear them from. We may never get the applause we think we deserve. But if we love God and love our neighbor, on the day we draw our last breath, the father of the universe is going to stand at the gate and say to you, well done, well done, welcome home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. The grace that changes lives, that changed my life. Thank you that you love us in spite of ourselves. And you invite us to love others in spite of ourselves. And Lord, help us to be the neighbors in our own neighborhood that you've called us to be.
Help us to keep our eyes open to the needs around us. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you've invited us in to your story. So help us to love you and love others. We pray in Jesus' name.